The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Detective Mike Merkel asked if the number could exceed 25 wounds. The pathologist nodded and said simply, yes. Dr. Kamal D. Sabarwal, a forensic pathologist with the St. Louis County Medical Examiner's Office, said the number and nature of the injuries made it impossible to establish a single cause of death or a time of death. The ME gave Merkel a list of general locations of the wounds, a shocking recitation of stab wounds and slashes to the neck, face, head, arms, shoulder, chest, back, and abdomen. Merkel rushed his report to Detective Ray Floyd and Keith Ryder. Betsy Faria was stabbed 25 times and counting. From Bone Deep, Untangling the Twisted True Story of the Tragic Betsy Faria Murder Case by Charles Botworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Welcome back, Murder Bookies, for episode 40, A Murder Most Foul, on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted true story of the tragic Betsy Farrier murder case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Jill Schwartz. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area, and I love discussing true crime where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. Each month, I will discuss a book I've pulled off my murder shelf. No boring timeline here. I present this story from the author's point of view. And in the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I'll cast the story in a new light, examine the path not taken, adding the latest, just to shake things up. So a brief update. I want to sincerely thank ODPH and Phyllis7341 for the five-star reviews. It means a great deal when you take the time to let me know how I'm doing. I really work my heart out to pick great books and stories so that your true crime needs are met to the fullest. So thank you, ODPH and Phyllis. All right, back last fall, when I was wrapping up the Lost Girls trilogy on the Long Island serial killer case, I did a mini-cast on former DA Tom Spoda and Christopher McPartland in Let the Games Begin, who were neck deep in covering up after then-police chief James Burke, who assaulted and threatened a prisoner, Christopher Loeb. Spoda and McPartland were tried and convicted of obstruction of justice in 2019, but sentencing was delayed and postponed. God knows why. They blamed covid But it was delayed until December 2021, when both were finally put behind bars. Good riddance, lose the keys. The appeal court denied them bail until the appeal is processed, and that's also good. They should have been behind bars for years for the corruption that they fostered. Now, we also got an update on the Long Island serial killer case on April 12, 2022. An announcement was made by the Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Rodney Harrison, 
who said, quote, we are making real progress, end quote. Well, I hope he's right. He went on to explain two new developments in the investigation. First, Harrison authorized the release of video never seen by the public of the lobby of the Holiday Inn Express in Hop Hog, New York, from June 4th to June 6th in 2010. Seen in a yellow top is victim Megan Waterman in her final hours. Quote, we believe she did leave the hotel that night to meet her killer. And we hope that anyone who may have been in the area that night or may have seen any individuals depicted in these videos will reach out to our Crime Stoppers hotline. That's 800-220-TIPS, end quote. So that was Commissioner Harrison. The police are hoping to jog memories leading to new tips and a suspect. Secondly, they are doubling the reward to $50,000 for information that leads to an arrest and a conviction. The link to the new videos is on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. And that brings us to Bone Deep. Oh my God, what a book. Oh my God. Coming in at 463 pages. So this was a long one. These pages grip you from the first page to the last page. Written by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz, who is the defense attorney. This book explores the death of Betsy Faria and the prosecution of her husband, Russell Faria, for her murder, step by step. All right. I thought I was frustrated with our last book, Unsolved, on the John Benny Ramsey case. But this took it to a whole new level. If you watch the NBC series, The Thing About Pam with Renee Zellweger that aired in March and April of 2022, you know this is a simply unbelievable train wreck of injustice. So I'm going to be filling in gaps with some mind-blowing information that will just leave you aghast. I do use a lot of quotes because I want you to hear the exact statements and not my interpretation of the statements. And you know I strive for accuracy. That's important. So you can make decisions for yourself. But still read the book. You want to know every scintilla of information. And of course, I can't include it all. So Charles Bosworth Jr., he is a best-selling author of seven true crime books, a number of them being turned into TV movies, and a daily news reporter for 27 years. He spent most of it with the St. Louis Dispatch and covered hundreds of state and federal trials and criminal cases. I really like him. I like the way he writes, and I'll be reading more of his books. Joel Schwartz, he received his law degree in 1987 after attending the University of Texas. Passing the bar, he began his career at a law firm and then moved to the public defender's office, then went on to form his own firm, Rosenbaum, Schwartz, and Fry, where you can find him today. He was honored by the American Trial Lawyers Association, Top 100 trial lawyers, top 100. That's pretty good. If I ever need a lawyer, I am calling him. All right, these two outstanding individuals collaborated in Bone Deep, and I thank them for bringing the story to my attention. Russell Faria and Joel Schwartz are going to be at ConCon in Las Vegas with me, and I'll be telling you some stories as my episodes progress. So look for updates if I can figure out how to do it from ConCon. <laughs> we'll see how that works. All right, so this is Book Club. So I'd like to bring to your attention a famous dessert from the St. Louis, Missouri region, gooey butter cake. All right, my taste buds are tingling with goodness. 
This is probably the easiest dessert that I've ever brought to you. You need cream cheese, butter, three eggs, and a box of yellow cake mix, confectioner sugar, almond or vanilla extract, and a deep 9 by 13 baking dish. You melt the butter, and yes, it does have to be butter. No skimping or calorie counting on this one. Melt the butter, add the cake mix and the egg. Use this to make like a sticky dough as you will wind up pressing this into the bottom of the pan. Then you mix the remaining ingredients, beat them, pour them over the sticky dough, and you bake for 30 to 45 minutes depending on your oven. The top should be a golden brown sugary crust. Let it cool completely, like 100%, not 85%. Really has to be cool. Sprinkle with confectioner sugar and you cut it into bars. There will be a delicious gooiness in the middle, and that is normal. It's not undercooked. It is just simply, utterly decadent. And this also works with gluten-free cake mixes. Now, what am I going to serve you with my gooey butter cake? Well, Table and Vine have a Quadi Electra Muscat, which is a light dessert wine, very delicate, very refreshing, made with orange muscat grape juice. It is a picnic wine. It is sweet, a little bit of a breath of springtime, a bouquet of peach and melon too. The electric goes well with spicy picnic foods, salads, pastas, and desserts. So it is a versatile choice and moderately priced at $14.99 a bottle too. The recipe and details, including the table and vine wine information, are on my blog. You know where that is. So bon appetit murder bookies. Now, brace yourselves. This story is simply logically challenged. It it just is. Anyone out there have a game night with friends? Maybe you play D&D, vampire, werewolf, role master. All right, in this story, the gamers gather every Tuesday night from 6 to 9 p.m. and have for years at Mike Corbin's mobile home in O'Fallon, Missouri. Now, the group loved role-playing games like role master, which was their choice. Each player would build a character with magical abilities and skills, following the guidance of the storyteller, Mike Corbin, whether on a quest or trying to solve a mystery. Creative, fun, innovative, the dice rolls determine successes or failures, and boy, can the dice be fickle. Players included Brandon Sweeney, Ann Julian, Mike Back, Richard May, and Russ Faria. Full disclosure, this sounds like my house once a month on our Saturday Mage game. So we do this. (laughs) Yes, I'm very much a nerd. On this day, though, Tuesday, December 27th, 2011, Richard May had to work, so he was going to be missing game. Not wanting to progress the story without Richard, Mike decided to put it on hold, and instead they would either play a different game, watch a movie, or just do something. Now, Russ Faria and wife Betsy texted several times that day, informing each other about their plans. Betsy spent the previous night at her mom, Janet Myers, as she was undergoing chemotherapy at the Siteman Cancer Center. The plan was, later on, Russ would pick up Betsy and take her home to their house in Troy, Missouri, and then head out to game. Around 3.45, Betsy texted Russ to say that her friend, Pam Hupp, had offered to drive her home, so he didn't need to pick her up. But don't forget to get the dog food. Russ replied that he'd see her soon. And she texts, okay, honey. Sounds like me and my husband all the time. So Russ had a typical day working in his home office in the basement in information technologies for enterprise leasing. 
off at 5 p.m. Betsy called him. She said she had some news. And he said, quote, good or bad. And Betsy replied, quote, it's good. Don't worry, end quote. So Russ heads out to do some errands, calling his mom to say he'd not make their usual Tuesday family dinner at her house. Russ took their blue 1999 Ford Explorer, stopped at Conoco, got some gas, stopped at UGAS to buy some cigarettes, and then picked up the dog food for their chestnut brown chow golden retriever mix, Sicily. Oh, I love that name. And that was at Green's Country Store in Lake St. Louis. He makes a final stop before getting to Mike's at Quick Trip to get two bottles of his favorite brick iced tea, a two-for-one deal. Not bad. Arriving at 6 p.m. on the dot, they'd settled down as Mike popped in Conan the Barbarian into the DVD player. There was the usual post-Christmas chatter and catching up. And after Conan, Mike put in The Road. But this post-apocalyptic story soon bored the gang. By 9 p.m., only halfway down the road, <laughs> they decided to call in the night heading out. Having skipped dinner, Russ was hungry. So a few minutes later, he pulled into Arby's, ordering two sandwiches, which he ate in the car, drinking some of the iced tea. He called Betsy to let her know he was on his way, but she didn't pick up. Now, that's not all that unusual, but she's usually exhausted from the chemo. About 9.45 p.m., Russ pulls into the driveway, hoists the bag of dog food over his shoulder, enters the foyer, puts the dog food down against the door on the left, which heads into the garage. He took off his black Harley Davidson leather jacket, dropped it on the chair to the right at the entrance going into the living room, and his call to Betsy died in his throat as the world exploded. Shocked, horrified, on the floor, Betsy was contorted in front of the sofa with a pool of dark blood turning black, blood pooling on the beige carpet under her head, and Russ just screamed. His wife of 11 years was on her right side, a flowery comforter underneath her. She was dressed casually, arms crossed in front of her, hands close to her face. Collapsing to his knees, Russ saw her face and hair were covered with dark blood. A deep gash was in her right forearm near the wrist. A black steak knife handle protruded from her neck. Her eyes were closed, her tongue extended, and she was dead. Keith thought she must have committed suicide. Betsy had threatened suicide before more than once and had been hospitalized for it. The recent diagnosis of terminal cancer, enduring chemo, her struggle with depression, Russ figured she'd hit the breaking point. He started to cradle her, but stopped knowing that this could create problems for the police when they started to investigate. And there was really nothing more he could do for his wife. Russ dialed 911 on his landline in the kitchen, sliding down the wall to the floor, just crushed. At 9.40, dispatcher Tammy Vaughn answered a loud, hysterical Russ. Quote, I just got home of a friend's house and my wife killed herself. She's on the floor. End quote. He gulped that there was a knife. Telling Russ to calm down, take a few breaths, Tammy asked if she was breathing. How long were you gone? Russ said, I left around five. I just got back. She went to her mom's and her friend was bringing her home and I don't know what time she got home. 911 said, you said she's been depressed? Russ, she's got cancer. 911, Russell, where's the knife now? Pain and hysteria in his voice intensifying. Russ, it's in her. It's still in her. 911, it's lying right next to her? Russ, 
No, it's in her neck as he sobbed. Oh my God, why would she do this to me? Why? 911. Russell, they're on their way, hun. Okay. What's her name? Russ. Her name is Betsy. Oh my God, no. 911. Russell, do you think she's beyond help right now? Russ sobbing. I think she's dead. Oh God. 911. Okay. Take a couple of deep breaths. If you need to, step outside, okay? Four minutes later, with Russ still on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, Deputy Chris Hollingsworth from the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office arrived. He saw Betsy's body and instantly knew it was a murder. Telling Russ he needed to leave the scene, he helped a very shaky man onto the porch. Beginning to shiver uncontrollably, Officer Hollingsworth thought Russ was in shock as he kept repeating, No, no, why? Why would she do this? Rush was only wearing his t-shirt and jeans, so a blanket was wrapped around him, and he was moved to the police car where it would be warmer. Chain-smoking, Rush tried to answer the deputy's questions, telling him about Betsy's cancer, her bout with depression, their activities the last few days, focusing on that day's events, and that Pam Hupp drove her home. Hollingsworth asked about their dog outside in the backyard barking. Russ told him that was unusual. Cicely only went out to potty and then came right back in. When Sheriff Detectives Mike Merkel and Patrick Harney arrived, they asked Russ to come back to the office to give them as much information as possible and to make a formal statement. Russ agreed as there was nothing else that he could do for Betsy now. He'd been preparing to lose her at some point in the near future, but this, this made no sense. At 10.30 p.m., Russ Faria sat in the tiny interview room, completely emotionally devastated. At 41, he had disheveled short black hair, a mustache and goatee, a stocky 230 pounds at 5'10". Leaving Russ alone, Detective Mike Merkel observed a very pale, almost panting Russ. The next four minutes shows Russ repeatedly whispering, no, 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 why, why, as he buried his face in his hands, sobbing. Later, Merkel wrote in his report, quote, It should be noted, Russell did not appear to have any moisture on his face or arms where he may have been crying, end quote. Russ talked about Betsy's health, history, her being too ill to work at the insurance company, her approval for Social Security disability, but that Betsy still played tennis when she had the energy, and she and Russ would have dinner together and then watch movies in bed, that they always went to church on Sundays, hanging out with friends on the weekends. When Merkel read Russ his Miranda rights, Russ asked if he was under arrest. Merkel said no, that they needed to learn as much as they could. Russ explained that Betsy's two daughters from a previous relationship were not living at home. Mariah, age 17, was living with Betsy's mother, 74-year-old Janet Meyer, and they all wanted her to graduate from the high school that she had been attending before they moved to Troy. Leah was now 21 and was staying with Betsy's sister after some conflicts with Betsy and Russ. Russ and Betsy married in 2000, and Russ admitted that they had had bumps along the way. They had engaged in frequent, loud arguments, but never violence. They had separated a couple times, the longest for a year, but they began attending the Morningstar Methodist Church, and the pastor's counseling had greatly improved their relationship. They'd been happy. Had Betsy been involved with anyone else during the separations? Well, yeah, yes, she had. The most difficult challenge, though, was the cancer diagnosis with Betsy undergoing a mastectomy in 2009. The cancer seemed to be gone, but it was back now in 2011, spreading to her liver. 
Sadly, it was inoperable with Betsy having three to five years life expectancy. In November, they had joined friends in taking a celebration of life cruise to Belize. Generally a positive, upbeat person, Betsy was also realistic, and she had begun making plans to take care of her girls after she was gone. Uh, why did Russ uh, think Betsy committed suicide? Russ answered, quote, because I saw her arms slashed, crossways, it was very deep, and I, and I saw a knife breaking down to cry again. Oh my God, the knife was in her neck, end quote. Merkel asked Russ about the lack of blood on his clothing. Russ drew a diagram of how he approached Betsy, and there was very little blood except under her head. Merkel asked Russ to pull up his shirt, revealing no blood stains or scratches. Merkel left Russ alone to observe him again, who began to sob, muttering, no, 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 why? Why has God taken her from me? Why? End quote. 30 minutes later, Merkel told Russ he couldn't leave yet, that they were still working on the crime scene. Could Merkel do anything for Russ? Russ just wanted his family, his girls, and he wanted his baby back. Merkel said, quote, I know you do, Russ. I think you're the only one who can help us with this right now. I think you have the most knowledge about the last few hours of her life. Truth being what it is, it's between you and Pam, right? End quote. If Merkel was suggesting that either Russ or Pam had killed Betsy, it whizzed right past Russ. At 3.25 a.m., Detective Ray Floyd of the Troy PD and Keith Ryder of the Chesterfield Police Department, both from the Major Case Squad, took over the questioning. Major Case Squad is a multi-jurisdictional organization of local police departments that provide detectives, resources, manpower, expertise to investigate a case, usually a homicide. Going over it all again, Russ gave them essentially the same story. No, they hadn't had any disagreements. Yes, they enjoyed Christmas. They'd last had sex Sunday night. They asked about Betsy's friend, Pam Hutt. Is there anything hinky about her? Thoughtfully, Russ said, no, not really. They'd been friends for several years. They got together for lunch now and again. Betsy and Pam worked for State Farm Insurance together. Had Betsy begun to make plans for her inevitable death? Well, not specifically, reported Russ. There was a $50,000 policy on Betsy through his job, and Betsy took out two policies over the years for $100,000 and $150,000. Russ was the primary beneficiary. Uh, What would Russ think if Betsy's death hadn't been suicide? Thinking, Russ commented that somebody would have had to broken in and killed her, but he had no idea who would do that. Everybody loved Betsy. No one would want to kill her. At 5.30 a.m., After seven hours of horrible questioning, Floyd asked Russ to sign off on a succinct 23-line account of Betsy's trip to chemo, his time at game, and the discovery of her body. He signed the 23-line statement. After another three hours, Russ told them how they'd had a terrific weekend. Betsy hadn't acted like anything was bugging her. She was happy. They'd played games as he broke down once more. Floyd asked Russ for a DNA sample, which he immediately agreed to. He'd asked a few times if he could call his mother, with the detective responding that he could later. Upset, exhausted, confused, Russ just wanted it to be over. Now Wednesday at 11.20 a.m., 13 hours into his interrogation, police told Russ that Petsy had not committed suicide. 
his foggy mind realized that somebody had broken in and killed Betsy. Floyd read Russ his Miranda rights again, assuring him he wasn't under arrest and he could leave at any time. But Russ felt anything but free to leave. He murmured that he'd do anything to help. Questioning shifted to whether Betsy had a boyfriend on the side. No, no, she didn't. Had Betsy been married before? Yes, yes, to Ron Carter, and they were still friends, and Ron occasionally helped out with home repairs. Floyd filled Russ in on the good news Betsy planned to tell him. It was a plan to move in with Mariah and Leah at her mom's home while Janet and friend Bobby lived upstairs. They could rent out their house in Troy and make some money. Russ replied, well, that he'd want to think about it, and he wanted to make sure that Mariah and Leah knew that they had to live by Russ and Betsy's rules, because this had been an issue in the past with Leah. Russ Faria was not particularly bothered or upset over this idea. Was Russ willing to take a polygraph to prove that he was, quote, just the poor husband who had come home to find this, end quote? Sure, Russ had nothing to hide. Was anyone else going to inherit if Betsy died? Russ said, quote, no. No, the only way that they would get money with her being gone is if I were gone too, because everyone knows that everything is in my name, end quote. He explained that Betsy asked him to look out for her mother, which he was glad to do, quote, she's been like a mom to me too, end quote. Had there been any changes to the life insurance policies? Not that Russ knew. The police got a copy of Betsy's autopsy report performed by forensic pathologist Dr. Camille de Saberwal with the St. Louis County Medical Examiner's Office. She had been stabbed 55 times to her neck, face, head, arms, shoulder, chest, back, and abdomen, which could indicate a crime of passion. Wednesday, 1.55 p.m., although he wasn't hungry, Russ ate the McDonald's that the police gave him. Reading Russ his Miranda rights for the third time now, Detective Gary McIntyre gave Russ the polygraph. After 13 hours of interrogation, exhaustion, and all without an attorney, this is a really bad idea. At 3.55 p.m., McIntyre, Floyd, and Ryder joined Russ in a small interrogation room, asking how he thought he did on the polygraph. And Russ replied, quote, I had to have passed, end quote. McIntyre reminded him that he told Russ he needed to be 100% honest to pass, and he had not been 100% honest. Russ registered shock, quote, I was, I was honest, end quote. McIntyre told Russ, all right, like, let's jump to the chase. You'll feel better if you just get this off your chest. And Russ was struck senseless, just horrified, not acknowledging the invitation to confess. They believed he was a blood-cold killer? He was just stunned, and he gasped, quote, No, I wasn't even there. No, I found her like that. I did, I did not do it, end quote. The officers commented, quote, We're dealing with someone who lost it, made a mistake, and is remorseful. Or, we're dealing with some kind of fucking monster. You tell us. We're dealing with you. You tell us who you'd rather a jury see. One of two people, end quote. And they urged Russ to just give it up. It's done. It's over. And Russ shook his head. Quote, God knows that I did not do this. I could not do this. I found her like that when I got home, end quote. 
The cops floated scenarios where Russ just blew a gasket. Something had happened when he got home, triggering a fight, with Russ repeating that nothing had occurred when he got home except him finding Betsy's body. They went around and around and over and over. They argued that Russ wanted the insurance money. Huh? Russ said he had no pressing need for money. Why had Russ practiced putting a pillow over Betsy's face? Quote, I never did that, end quote, Russ replied, completely flabbergasted. Who had said that? Never, the police demanded. So her friends are just making up this story? Well, this was patently false. Who would say this? Why would her friends tell the police that Betsy was afraid of Russ? Quote, she had no reason to be scared of me. She's never scared of me, end quote. A rattled Russ asked if the police had talked to his gaming buddies. He was told, quote, you left at 9 o'clock, you got home at 9.30, 9.35, the call was around 10.45. That's why we need to know what happened in that 10 or 15 minute time frame. She was alive and healthy when you got home, end quote. Law enforcement locked into this position that in a 10 minute window, Russ came home, slaughtered Betsy, cleaned up, changed clothes, and called 911, earning an Oscar. This is one of the most incredibly frustrating true crime stories I have ever read, and I've read a lot, believe me. It's really important to get a sense of what happened in these first hours of the investigation and how quickly the police concluded Russ did it, which is why I went into a lot of detail here. Detective Ray Floyd dropped the big lie that Betsy had been dead for less than an hour when the police got there, that they had a ton of evidence all pointing at Russ. Russ repeated his story, unaltered. He came in, put down the dog food, took off his jacket, saw Betsy. They pressured him to confess for his daughters. They told him the scene had been cleaned up. There was blood in his bedroom. Russ said, I never went to the bedroom. There was blood on his clothes. Baffled. Russ looked, he was still wearing the same clothes he'd worn all night. And note for the record, there is no blood on his clothes. In the last 90 minutes of this interrogation, Russ had stated he didn't kill his wife, had nothing to do with it, 77 times. After 18 grueling hours of interrogation, Russ's story remained the same. So time to stop the madness. With a new sense of defiance, Russ said he wanted a lawyer right now. McIntyre and Ryder immediately exited. At 4.36 p.m., Wednesday, December 28, 2011, 21 hours after Betsy was murdered, Floyd handcuffed Russ behind his back. Floyd was overheard saying, quote, as soon as they want a lawyer, that means they're guilty, end quote. And Russ was arrested. He was finally allowed to call his mother, telling her he'd been arrested for murdering Betsy. Russ asked his cousin, Mary Anderson, to contact the attorney she worked for, Andrew Benny, also a member of Russ and Betsy's church. Mary called Benny, then Russ's sister, Rachel Faria. Everyone was utterly stunned, knowing that Russ could never have done such a thing. After a restless night in a cell, now Thursday, at 10.42 a.m., Detective Mike Merkel arrived with a search warrant to collect Russ's clothes. Lawyer Andrew Beanie arrived, not believing the mild-mannered man that he knew could have killed his wife. Beanie gave the police two names to investigate for the murder, however, Pam Hupp 
and an ex-boyfriend of Leah's. Then he was told they were releasing Ross now due to lack of evidence. All right, I threw the book across the room reading this, and I did this a lot reading this book. They arrested him, but now they lack evidence. I thought there was a ton of evidence that they knew what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering based on what they arrested him for in the first place. An emotionally and physically shaken Russ and Andrew Beanie left the jail, both feeling physically assaulted, being swamped by the glut of reporters. How had they gotten here? Russ and Betsy's story began in 1997. O'Fallon, Missouri, where 28-year-old Russ Maria noticed a cute 29-year-old woman with a big smile, bright blue eyes, curly brown hair with golden highlights, working the cash register. She was kind of classy looking in Russ's eyes, Betsy Carter. She was getting a divorce, but asked Russ out anyway. And this date would mushroom into a romance with Russ coming to love her two girls, then three and seven years old. Living together for two years, Betsy and Russ were married in January 2000. Russ grew up in nearby Florissant, Missouri, a warm middle-class community on the outskirts of St. Louis. He earned his high school equivalency degree from technical school, managing a liquor store when he met Betsy. Betsy recognized that he was capable of far more and encouraged him to go to school for a BS in information technology. Better jobs follow, and he came to work for the massive enterprise leasing operation headquarters in St. Louis County. Like Russ, Betsy Meyer Faria grew up in the St. Louis suburbs, third of four daughters in a strict Roman Catholic family. An outstanding high school pitcher, Betsy's team won the state championships in 1984 and 1985. At that time, Betsy began a DJ company, Party Starters, which was just perfect for her gregarious personality. During their marriage, Russ often helped her out running the sound system during events that she'd booked. Living in Florida after high school, Betsy had had a relationship with her daughter's father. Moving to St. Louis, he returned to Florida after Mariah's birth in 1994. In 1995, Betsy married Ron Carter, but it only lasted a year before she divorced him. And then she married Russ Faria, and Russ and Betsy had had a stormy relationship early on. Heated arguments, they had separated a few times where they both dated other people. But each time, they forgave each other and came back together. Their couple's counseling had really seriously improved their relationship in recent years. Thursday, December 29th, 2011, two days after Betsy's murder. Russ was certain that the police released him because they realized he had nothing to do with the murder and they couldn't have any evidence because he wasn't there. Nevertheless, a cousin, the same cousin, Mary Anderson, looked Russ in the eye and said, quote, is there anything you want to tell me, end quote. And Russ again denied killing Betsy, and Mary knew it was the absolute truth. Betsy's family supported Russ, especially her mom, Janet, who did not harbor any suspicions. They began to plan the funeral, which would be paid for by Russ's family. But an issue arose. Betsy was raised Catholic, while the Morning Star United Methodist Church had been so important to her and Russ's relationship. So accommodating both needs, Russ arranged a dual service on January 3rd, 2012, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Wentzville at 10.30 a.m., and then later on at Morning Star at 7.30 p.m., a great compromise. At the funeral home, however, there would be drama. Russ looked at Betsy 
a scarf hiding the injuries to her throat, and began to sob, falling to his knees in a heartbreaking scene. Later on, one of Betsy's aunts marched in and struck him in the chest and angrily spat, How could you? Russ restrained himself, not responding. When his mother, Lucy, learned of it, the tiny little Italian lady confronted Auntie and let her have it as only an Italian matriarch mama can. If you've ever seen an Italian matriarch mama in action, you know what I'm talking about. The third event happened when Mark and Pam Hub arrived, with Mark confronting Russ with accusations and hostility. Why would he do that to Janet, to Leah, to Mariah, even if he disliked and was suspicious of Russ? It devolved into a shouting match between Mark and Rachel Faria, with the funeral director asked to remove the Hubs, threatening to call the police on them. The Huffs left. Everyone was baffled at the nasty aggression showed by Mark Hub. What was that about? January 4th, 2012, six days after Betsy's murder, Russ was now living at his parents' house. Rachel took Russ to the mall to get a new cell phone that morning because the police had kept his, you know, part of evidence. As anyone who has lost someone to an act of violence knows, Russ was still shell-shocked, trying to pull himself together. Late afternoon, he was chatting with a cousin on Facebook about visiting when he heard a commotion. He walked in on a distressing, unbelievable scene. Troy police officers, Sergeant Ryan McCarrick and Detective Ray Floyd, guns drawn, pushing past his parents, Richard and Lucy, with Richard shouting that they can't come in without a warrant, with them shouting back, we have a warrant, and guns aimed at Russ. Quote, you are under arrest for the murder of your wife. Get down on your knees, end quote. All of Faria is watched in complete shock. Mind racing, Russ dropped to his knees, put his hands behind his back. Focusing now, he forced himself to stay calm, moving silently to the police car, hearing, quote, you forgot to check the drains. There is blood in the drains and on the mop, end quote. Booked at Lincoln County Jail, Russ was charged with one count of first-degree murder, punishable by 10 to 30 years in prison, life without parole, or the death penalty, and one count of armed criminal action, alleging he committed murder while armed with a deadly weapon, and that was punishable by a minimum of three years to no maximum years in prison. Russ was beginning the fight of his life. Enter attorney Joel Schwartz. He began every day reading the law and order section of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, noting names of the newly arrested, details of alleged crimes, because Joel J. Schwartz was a consummate professional, one of the top criminal defense attorneys in the Midwest, and he might get a call from one of these folks. January 4th, 2012, that call came. Mary Anderson called for Russell Faria, a name Schwartz did recognize. Mary Anderson had been the assistant at the first law firm Joel joined after he left the St. Louis Public Defender's Office. She filled Joel in on everything she could think of regarding Russ and Betsy's relationship, plus Russ's detailed game night alibi. She also told Joel about the weird behavior of one of Betsy's friends and the last person to see Betsy alive, Pam Hub. It seemed to Mary that Mark and Pam Hub's behavior was calculated to create hostility and suspicion towards Russ, and Joel agreed to meet with Russ. Unless Russ's rock-solid alibi crumbled, 
the charges against him should be dropped rather quickly, thought Joel Schwartz. After the funeral, the media storm had taken a turn. The Post-Dispatch described a, quote, wake and funeral that were filled with tension because of suspicion about Russell Faria's involvement in his wife's death, end quote. Mother-in-law Janet was quoted as saying, I can't handle it. I've been close to him as well. NBC affiliate KSDK also reported that Betsy had come home tired, had laid down on the sofa, so she'd been asleep at the time of the attack. Now, where did that information come from, wondered Schwartz. Box 2 Now, which I used a lot doing research in this case, quoted Sheriff Kriegbaum saying that they had gotten the right man, that Russ's alibi and timeline had unraveled. This led police to believe the crime was premeditated. Seated in a small interview room, Schwartz met an exhausted Russ. Sizing him up, Joel concluded that the husky man certainly could do a person some damage, but the man's expression and eyes were far from threatening. Russ repeated the story of what he'd done and what he found on that terrible day, insisting adamantly he had not killed his wife. He struck Schwartz, the seasoned defense attorney, as genuine. Ultimately, Schwartz followed the evidence. It occurred to Joel that a man who had come home, flew into a rage, slaughtered his wife, would not call 911 and tell them Betsy had committed suicide, knowing he'd inflicted 55 stab wounds. That just made no sense. Joel warned Russ not to speak to anyone and assumed that a snitch or a recorder was in his jail cell. He was on this and he would get Russ out of there. So who is super defense attorney Joel Schwartz? Joel hadn't always wanted to be a lawyer. He wanted to be a movie star. His mother's, yeah, a movie star. His mother, Susie, was a dancer, and his father, Artie, dreamed of being a star on Broadway, a long way from his auto salvage yard in St. Louis. Joel was tall, curly brown hair, athletic build, handsome, went to the University of Texas at Austin, and then law school while modeling. He appeared on the cover of Texas Monthly Magazine and actually published a pinup calendar, which I have been trying to find a copy of. So if you have one, let me know. Graduating law school in 1987, he moved to L.A. to take acting classes and auditioning as you do while you're waiting tables. When the writer's strike shut down the entertainment industry in 1989, Joel Schwartz went back to St. Louis for a visit. And there he ran into a buddy who was working in the public defender's office handling a murder case. And he invited Joel to sit in. And Schwartz enjoyed it. He really enjoyed it. Enough to interview for a job as an assistant public defender. He thrived, displaying a natural talent as a trial attorney in criminal defense. Within a few years, he and another public defender formed their own firm, which I mentioned before, Rosenblum, Schwartz, and Fry. Now, at 50, he was one of the state's best defense attorneys. Meanwhile, in jail, Russ is coping the best he could, befriending a big prisoner named Mark, a really bad dude. Mark warned Russ that his new cellmate had been ordered by the police to beat him up. Mark warned the guy, though, do not touch him. So the would-be attacker was pretty upfront. He comes into their cell and he says, look, I have no interest in attacking you, but we need to pretend to have a fight and make it look good. 
So tearing their shirts, throwing things around, making a lot of noise, yelling. It was a very convincing performance. Russ spent the next few days in a dark cell, however, where he couldn't even read to pass the time. All the while, he's grieving for Betsy. He just wanted to weep and cry, but that's not a real good look while you're among a prison population. So instead, he just focused on survival, on Joel, and his case. The pretrial portion of court activity was moving along at a snail's pace, but Joel finally received the major case squad's files as part of discovery. He brought in a talented young associate, Nathan Swanson, or Nate, as second chair, who dove into the files. And Nate said, Joel, you've got to see this, because this is going to tell you who killed Betsy Faria. And Joel began to read. On Wednesday, December 28th, Detective Stephanie Kaiser and Sergeant Perry Smith knocked on Pam Hupp's door at 6.40 a.m., where she received them with her hair still wet from the shower. The hefty 53-year-old married mother of two adults sat for a three-hour interview after they gently broke the tragic news of Betsy's death. They did not mention murder. Pam sobbed on learning her friend of 11 years was gone, her voice choking emotionally as she described the fatally deteriorating marriage of Betsy and Russ Faria. Was she Betsy's best friend? Her response was, quote, um, Betsy had a lot of best friends, zillions of best friends. But yes, I saw her almost every day, every other day, end quote. She went on to tell them about Betsy's last days, being at her mom, Janet, so her mom could drive her to her 1.30 p.m. chemo on Tuesday at the Siteman Cancer Center. Betsy texted Pam that morning to say she was getting a ride from friend Bobby. Pam didn't know Bobby herself, but that was okay. They wanted to spend some girl time together while she was visiting from Texas. Pam decided to join Betsy anyway, driving to Betsy's mom's apartment where she missed Betsy and Bobby who had already left. Hmm. Kind of pushy, don't you think? She's kind of buttoning in on Betsy Bobby time. I don't know if I'd like that. Pam said goodbye to Janet and set off to join them at Siteman. After chemo, Pam declined to join Betsy and Bobby, who had dinner at the Lions Club restaurant, because she wanted to have dinner with her husband, Mark. Then Pam drove back to Janet's around 5.15 p.m. You see, Betsy was staying at her mother's most weekends because she didn't like going home. Eyebrows shot up. She didn't. Well, why not? Well, because of her husband, Russ. Well, that was unexpected, as Schwartz kept reading the report. Pam went on about the terrible marriage the Farias were in. They'd separated six or seven times. Not that Pam knew Russ very well. She'd only met him three times in 10 years. And Russ doesn't come to functions. He's not verbally nice to her, and he makes Pam uncomfortable. Had Pam witnessed Russ being verbally abusive? Quote, oh, yeah, he's kind of pompous. I mean, he seems nice enough. I just don't know him that well, end quote. She tells them that Betsy often spoke of leaving Russ. The weekend before Christmas, Betsy and a friend, maybe a cousin Linda, went to a popular tourist destination in Branson, Missouri. And there the women discussed leaving their husbands and getting a place together in Branson. This, again, surprised Joel Schwartz because he'd heard nothing but how well the Furias were getting along. Pam waited while Betsy finished playing a board game with her mother and Bobby, and they left around 6 p.m. guest Pam. When they arrived at Betsy's, Pam called husband Mark to say they'd arrive safely. 
He had left his phone in the car, so he missed the call and they left a voicemail with Betsy wishing Mark a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Pam was asked if she went inside. Quote, no, I helped her. We drove up and the car was in the garage or in the driveway, so we thought he was home. And I said, well, there's no lights on. Maybe he took the other car. And I said, do you want me to walk you to the door? And she said, yes. So I walked her to the door and in until she could get the lights on. And then she got the front light on and she walked in and turned the living room light on and called for him, but he wasn't there, end quote. So did you actually ever go inside the house? Quote, yes, I did. I took her in. Right. Schwartz blinked in surprise. Pam had contradicted her statement from seconds ago, saying she'd not got in, but now admitting she was the last person to see Betsy alive and had gone into the house and had gone into the room during the time frame where Betsy had been killed. And it continues. Quote, we just went in. She turned on the hall light and then Betsy doesn't like to be alone. So I went in and I turned on her living room light and then I walked around and turned on her kitchen light so she would have the lights on, end quote. Wow, there's another contradiction. Who did turn on the living room light? Was it Betsy or is Pam? Red mountains are popping up here for me. Pam described Betsy as putting the dog in the backyard because he was jumping on them. And Pam told Betsy how she was taking her mom to see a financial advisor in the morning. All in all, Pam said she'd been there 10, 20 minutes. And Pam says she called Mark after she left. Well, what time had she made that call? The detectives wanted to know. After a long pause, Pam said, quote, I don't think I called him. I called Betsy when I got home or was on my way home. That's right. I called Betsy, end quote. Well, had Betsy answered? Quote, no, no, she didn't answer, which was not unusual for her if she's on the other line, end quote. Had she left a message? Quote, I think I did. Yeah, that I was home or almost home, end quote. She called and texted Betsy again later that evening, but was worried because Betsy had been feeling sick and was sneezing, and she knew Betsy's white blood cell count was low from the chemo. She called Betsy's mother later to express her concern over not reaching Betsy. Betsy had asked her to stay and watch a movie until Russ got home from his weekly game, but Pam wanted to get out of there. She wanted to go home. Click! Schwartz realized Pam was prosecuting attorney Leah Askey's source of information that Betsy had been killed while she was lying down on the sofa. Aha! Okay. Pam retrieved her cell phone, which showed that she called Mark at 7.04 p.m. The call she made to Betsy was at 7.27. Had Pam arrived home when she made the Betsy call? Did she remember where she was when she called? Quote, oh, I was on the road. I always get lost in Troy and it's really dark. So actually, I was in Troy and I said, I either said, I'm on my way home or I'm already home so she wouldn't worry, end quote. After Pam got home, she showered and called Betsy again at 8.52 p.m. to check on her. She got no answer. Smith confirmed the phone text between Pam and Betsy, finding the ones from Tuesday morning, making plans for the day. Then Pam told detectives about the idea they discussed at chemo, a complicated controversy, as she put it, about Betsy and Russ buying her family home since the family was having financial problems. They'd live downstairs with Betsy's daughters, and Janet and Bobby would live upstairs while Russ and Betsy rented their Troy home to generate income. Betsy was going to talk about this when he got home Tuesday night 
and was concerned it would make him very angry. Betsy hated being stuck in Troy with Russ, so far from her mom and family. And Pam told police she already spent most of her weekends on the sofa at her mom's. Pam told the police, quote, She told me she doesn't like to go there on the weekends because, well, sometimes he's in a good mood and they do a lot of things together, but he's very degrading to her. And he comments about how much money he's going to have after she's gone because he's got life insurance on her at work, end quote. According to Betsy, Russ was very mean. Smith asked if Russ was physically violent. Pam said she didn't know. She'd never had that conversation with Betsy. Quote, but he's pompous and a know-it-all, smoking in the house when he knows she's sick. He's very disrespectful, very disrespectful. And she gets her feelings hurt a lot because she's afraid to be there on the weekends with him. End quote. Mind blown. Schwartz realized that Pam had escalated Betsy's attitude from limiting her time with Russ to being afraid of him. She was clearly building a case against Russ as a menacing potential killer. And then came the revelation that changed everything for Joel. Pam told Smith and Kaiser she and Betsy were at the tennis club last week. Betsy said she'd written Pam a message, quote, about something Russ was going to say to her that was really disturbing to her, end quote. Betsy hadn't been able to send it to Pam because it was on a form on her computer. But Betsy said that she was afraid to email Pam because Russ snooped through her emails and the printer was in Russ's office. However, Pam never saw the letter. Betsy hinted at it, telling Pam that she said, quote, the last week that she was with him, he started playing this game of putting a pillow over her face to see what it would feel like to die, and then act like he was kidding. She was really upset, end quote. Had Betsy sounded scared? Quote, oh yeah, very scared. But, but then she would laugh, end quote. So, She's talking about divorcing her husband after this game of his? Quote, oh, yeah, a lot. She's always done that, though. She was always desperate, like talking yesterday that she wanted to get back in and go live with her mom, end quote. Betsy was going to approach Russ yesterday evening with this deal moving into her mom's house. Quote, absolutely. She said he would not leave his house. It's his house, end quote. Schwartz listened as Pam Hub single-handedly built a case against Russ Faria as an abusive, scheming husband, eager to cash in on the death of his wife, who he taunted putting pillow over her face, which certainly could be viewed as a test run for murder. She even provided the trigger that could have set Russ off, making him angry. Schwartz concluded Pam was the source of much of the information used by police to arrest Russ for murder. They seemed way too eager to accept everything Pam said as gospel instead of acknowledging some of the glaring contradictions. So how did Pam Hupp and Betsy Faria meet? Well, they had worked together at an insurance office for a decade or so, and then Pam dropped another bomb, one the interviewers seemed to miss entirely. While describing Russ as creepy, watching her with a funny look, Pam suggested that Betsy change her beneficiary on her life insurance policy to her mother. In discussing this, Betsy said she feared her mother would not handle the money properly and her daughters would blow it as well. Then Pam claimed Betsy said, quote, would you be my beneficiary on my life policies and make sure my kids get it when they need it? End quote. Pam, of course, agreed to be her beneficiary 
on the $150,000 policy. And on December 23rd, 2011, the women met at the Wing Haven Public Library where Betsy had a state farm change of beneficiary form for Pam to sign in front of a witness, librarian Lauren Magnamelli, on the condition that Pam would give the money to the girls when they were older. Had Betsy processed the form before she died? Pam didn't know. The revelations continued. Joel Schwartz realized Pam had just given herself a motive for murdering Betsy Faria, making her a suspect, piling this on her obvious mission to frame Russ. The beneficiary switch made, Pam decides to kill Betsy, knowing that Russ is away at game night on Tuesday. Hence, Pam inserting herself into the Janet Bobby driving home from chemo scenario. And Pam puts $150,000 into her account, free and clear, with Russ taking the rap. Detective Smith took a bathroom break around 7.40 a.m., leaving Pam and Detective Kaiser to speak about Pam missing her and her brother's 8.30 a.m. appointment with a financial advisor for her mom, who is suffering from dementia. Pam called her brother to explain that she was speaking with police about her friend. Something had happened to her last night, and she'd not be making their meeting. They discussed how to handle mom's annuity payment before and after she died. This conversation wasn't recorded into the official transcript of the interview or the police report later, but it existed in audio recording, and it didn't seem pertinent to Joel Schwartz at the time. When Detective Smith returned, Pam told them that the Farias were having financial problems. Pam recently took Betsy and tried to get food stamps for her daughters because their resources were so taxed. Betsy was happy that back child support was coming, possibly as much as $20,000. Pam explained that Betsy had been married before, but not to the children's father. But to Ron, she didn't recall his last name. Ron and Betsy were still seeing each other, although Russ didn't know. Quote, Betsy would sleep with him to get things done in the house. That's how she is. They had that kind of relationship. He loved the kids. He'd always been there when she was fighting with Russ. Or she says that Russ doesn't give her sex, you know? Ron's there. I've met him about three times. It's just a weird arrangement, end quote. Something occurred to me. I had attended a How to Spot a Liar program and read several books for another episode. There's a default number that liars pounce on and use all the time. Three. She's met Russ three times. She's met Ron three times. Hmm. Detective Smith moved to the real question. Did Pam have an opinion on who did this to Betsy? Pam hesitated. Quote, you didn't tell me what happened to her, end quote. Kaiser awkwardly said, quote, she's not accidentally dead. She's not naturally dead, end quote. Pam asked, what did that mean? Do you think she would kill herself? Pam trembled a little, quote, well, I... I don't know. I don't think so. She's been very depressed, but no, I don't think so. She's Catholic like me, and we're very serious about it, end quote. Dodging, Kaiser said she was just trying to figure out what happened to her friend. Did she know anyone who would want to hurt her? Quote, everybody loved, she had a zillion friends. No, she was the nicest, sweetest. Just recently, I mean, you know, she's been afraid of her husband, but that's throughout their marriage, end quote. Well, how would Pam describe their marriage? Quote, well, it's not a marriage. They don't really live, you know. I mean, she got back to him for financial reasons because she had two girls. 
end quote. And then Pam dropped this one, quote, Betsy planned to divorce Russ so she could marry a man she was seeing the last time she and Russ separated. She was devastated when the man decided to return to his wife, end quote. Boom. When the return of Betsy's cancer came up, Pam began to cry. Betsy hadn't wanted a prognosis, hadn't wanted to know how much time she might have left, but Russ insisted, and she learned that she had three to five years. She was due for another scan to see if the chemo was shrinking the tumor, but she wasn't sure it was working because Betsy had started to wet the bed, also annoying Russ. With Pam crying, Kaiser told her that they were trying to figure out if Betsy would kill herself or if someone had done this to her. Was there anything else Pam wanted to discuss with them? Pam suggested again they try to find the letter Betsy was going to send her and then launched into another long rant about Betsy fearing Russ. Although, quote, Russ has always been very nice to me. He's just verbally, he's nasty, especially when he drinks, end quote. And then she brings up the insurance money again. Detective Smith asked Pam how the HUP finances were. Oh, they're all set. She has 20000 in the checking account, money and annuities with both a traditional and Roth IRAs. Did Pam think Russ could have done this? She stated again she didn't know him well enough as she began a long, convoluted debate with herself, concluding that Russ, quote, thinks he's going to get a lot of money unless she told him he wasn't going to get a lot of money. They could get into some nasty fights. I don't know what happened last night when she talked to him, but she was very excited to talk to him, end quote. Joel Schwartz shook his head. Her two comments about not knowing what happened last night confirmed that Pam knew when Betsy had died was last night. If you were listening during the phone conversation with her brother, she stated that something had happened to her friend last night. And in this comment, I don't know what happened last night. Again, she refers to something happening to Betsy last night. While she's clever pushing this trigger that could possibly explain a burst of rage and extreme violence from Russ that he'd snapped. But she also confirms that she knows something happened to Betsy last night. But she's only talking about this because the police asked her to. Pam also suggested that Russ wouldn't want to live with Betsy's family, conveying stories of mistrust and dislike between him and Janet and Leah and Mariah. After all, Russ had banned his daughters from his house and demanded that Betsy not provide any financial support for them. And Pam knew that Russ and Janet weren't getting along either. They circled back. Had Russ abused Betsy? Pam denied ever seeing anything, but Betsy, quote, would insinuate stuff that they would get into really big fights, but I've never seen bruises on her. I mean, people would be going, your husband is an ass, and that's just rude. And she's like, oh, he's always like that, end quote. As the interview was wrapping up, Pam asked about the time that this had happened. Was it in the morning? With the police declining to answer. But Joel Schwartz saw the Red Mountains. This struck him as an obvious attempt to hide her knowledge that Betsy had been killed last evening, which she'd already said twice at this point, because the police had not disclosed it to her yet, but she demonstrated that she knew. The police recorder went off at 9.06 a.m. 
until Pam remembered something and the recorder went back on at 9.17 a.m. And she described being at the gym with Betsy a week or so before. Betsy had asked her to get a couple bottles of Gatorade from the car, and Pam did, and said that Betsy took a big gulp and started gagging. It tasted just awful. And she asked Pam to try it. Pam didn't, but it smelled okay to her. But holding it up, it looked cloudy. Russ had bought the Gatorade for Betsy because he wanted her to keep her electrolytes in her system to help starve off the effects of chemo. Betsy wound up pouring the rest out. Is this a veiled effort to think that Russ was poisoning his wife, too? Didn't know what quite to make of that one. Kaiser asked if Betsy ever spoke about suicide. Well, she had. Once, when separated from Russ, Betsy was having difficulties with her daughter, and she said, you know, I just feel like killing myself. I can't do this anymore, Pam explained. Then she continued, quote, whether she's ever attempted, I don't think so, but she can be down in the dumps and an hour later flying high, end quote. The interview ended at 9.41 a.m. But the police were back at 12.15 p.m. knocking on Pam's door with more requests. Pam signed her agreement to have the police search her cell phone, take a DNA sample, and Pam's clothing from the night before. A red t-shirt, pants, sneakers, white coat, and she said she had not laundered any of the items. Pam consented for them to take photographs of her face, neck, hands, arm, feet, and she bore no noticeable marks or injuries. Oh, and please clarify, Pam, where were you on December 27th, 2011, 7.27 p.m. when you called Betsy? Pam replied she'd driven 10 or 15 minutes after leaving Betsy, calling her, but she hadn't answered. Well, there you are. Within 24 hours on Thursday, Kaiser and Smith were back to return Pam's cell phone, and they asked for more details about their outing to the Winghaven Library to complete the insurance forms. Kaiser and Smith had already interviewed librarian Lauren Maganelli, who recalled two women at the table for less than an hour and asked her to witness the signing of some kind of insurance paper. Magnamelli had described them as cheerful, friendly, dressed in workout clothes, and it was definitely on December 23rd because Betsy had checked out a book. Their fourth trip to see Pam Hop later the same day was to interview hubby Mark Hop, and they promptly blew it, violating rule number one in police investigation. They allowed Pam to join them. Mark said he knew Betsy but not Russ, and he confirmed he'd left his phone in the truck and received Pam's voicemail saying that she'd arrived at Betsy's and was leaving for home soon, the one Betsy had left him a holiday greeting in. So you're probably thinking the detectives took Mark's phone to preserve the voicemail, right? No, no, another glaring error. And of course, Mark Hub erased it. Next, Pam commandeered the interview with Mark. In their report, they write, quote, while interviewing Mark, Pam would begin to speak and engage in conversation, end quote. There is not another single statement from Mark in this entire report. Yeah. Joel Schwartz was shocked again. The police gathered zero useful information from the interview with Mark, absurdly conducted in front of his wife. What the hell? They didn't ask him when his wife got home, didn't ask him what she'd been wearing, what she said, nothing. Was anyone paying attention to what this woman was up to? 
When asked, Pam agreed to Detective Kaiser's request for a polygraph, which was scheduled for December 30th, 2011. It was delayed, however, because Pam wanted her attorney there. Then she wasn't sure she could take a polygraph because she was on a variety of medications from the fall she'd had that left her with a brain injury. Detective Gary McIntyre suggested, he suggests, he suggests she get a letter from her doctor saying she was medically fit to undergo the test. Well, great idea, Gary. But on January 25th, 2012, a letter from Dr. Ronald L. Fisher arrived that read, quote, to whom it may concern, Pamela Hupp is unable, unable to undergo a polygraph due to her medical conditions. This was discussed with Pamela Hupp when she was last seen in her office on January 3rd, 2012. Sincerely, Dr. Ronald L. Fisher, end quote. So she got a note excusing her from taking the polygraph. Later, it was learned that Pam sent Dr. Fisher a handwritten note which read, quote, Dear Dr. Fisher, could you please write Detective Kaiser a letter saying that I'm not able to do my polygraph due to medical reasons? Don't need any more details than that. Thank you, Pam Hubbard, end quote. But wait. Later, during a deposition, Dr. Fisher would tell Joel Schwartz that he was unaware of any medical reason that Pam Hupp could not take a polygraph. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So let me ask you something, murder bookies. Why would Pam manipulate her doctor into helping her avoid a polygraph when she's just telling the truth? Why didn't the police call her out on this? Why wasn't it noted that she was zealously pointing her finger at Rosferia? So many whys. How on earth did the police and prosecuting attorney Leah Askey miss this? So, Schwartz agrees with Nate Swanson that the case should be against Pam Hupp, not Russ Faria. Russell's rock-solid alibi was what their defense would be built around. But it was also a Sodi. Some other dude did it. And this dude, allegedly, was Pam Hupp. Moving forward, next up was Betsy's autopsy report which was the ugliest document in the police file, to quote Joel Schwartz, prepared by Dr. Kamal D. Sabrawal. He began the autopsy on December 28, 15 hours after Russ found Betsy's body. It began benignly enough, white female, age 42, 160 pounds, brown and blonde hair, blue eyes and the like. Rigor mortis was severe in the jaw and upper and lower extremities. And then every single one of the 55 stab wounds was documented, including the coordinating damage that had been done to her body. It was horrifyingly gruesome, the level of barbarity inflicted on this woman. The cause of death were stab wounds to the neck, chest, and abdomen. The only drug in Betsy's system was Benadryl. Next up, Russ's 911 call. Joel noted his hyperventilation hysteria that did not seem excessive or over the top. Russ thought that Betsy had committed suicide, given her history of having depression and suicidal thoughts. That didn't seem outrageous either, not given the grievous wounds on her arms and wrist, because many of the other wounds were concealed beneath her, 
the police theory that Russ somehow misdirected them by saying Betsy had killed herself seemed even more incredible. Had he killed her, he'd know she had 55 wounds and that a claim of suicide was ridiculous. So why would he do that? It just doesn't make any sense. Perplexed, this was the cornerstone of the prosecution's case? Seriously? Joel believed the average person would hear Russ's shocked, dismayed, disbelief, agony in the 911 call, indicating an anguished husband, not some theatrical killer. Reading on, the first officer on the scene was Lincoln County Sheriff Deputy Chris Hollingsworth. We mentioned him. He arrived literally a few minutes after Russ got home. He observed Russ was not crying, but he also noted Russ's erratic breathing, speaking, his panic. So much so, the deputy feared that Russ would collapse or pass out. But Hollingsworth still judged Russ as, quote, not acting right, end quote. In the patrol car, shaking with a blanket over him, Russ rambled about Betsy's cancer, their activities, the discovery of Betsy. Hollingsworth wrote, quote, It should be noted that during this conversation, Russell appeared to be calm, laughing at times, and I observed a few tears in his eyes as he stated he needed to contact his mother and is unsure of how he's going to tell his daughters, end quote. Captain Robert Sharmick of the Lincoln County Fire Protection District arrived a few minutes after the deputy examining Betsy, checking her pulse. When Sharmick tried to lift her hand, her entire arm lifted up. Rigor mortis was apparent, meaning the victim had been dead for two to four hours. The blood around Betsy was cold and coagulating, more evidence that the death had occurred two to three hours before. Supervisor Mike Kotroki and two paramedics arrived at 9.51 p.m. right behind Shermick. It was the paramedics who placed the blanket around trembling rush. Kotroki would recall a man sitting on the porch, noticeably distraught, in shock. Shermick told the paramedic, that the victim was dead and, quote, stiff as a board, end quote, who confirmed touching the victim's stiff and cold arms, the knife still in her neck, blood coagulating. He also concluded she'd been dead for some time and that emergency medical services were not needed. Quatroki and his team left. Given the complexities at 1.30 a.m., the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office filed an official request for the major case squad to assist. Sheriff County Detective Sergeant Ryan McCarrick would record all activities with MCS going forward. The MCS team fanned out across the region, collecting information on victim Elizabeth K. Korea, known as Betsy. They learned she was bubbly, upbeat, and not letting cancer get her down, and no one had a clue who might want to kill her. Nothing suspicious went on that Tuesday. Crime scene investigators went over the house, documenting and photographing every inch, even before Betsy's body was taken away. They preserved the bloody carpet on the floor, sections of the sofa with bloody stains, and a second unbloodied knife that was found underneath a pillow. What police thought might be a dog print was noted on the left rear hip of Betsy's pants, and it was marked for testing. If the dog had touched a dead Betsy, that would contradict Russ's statement that the dog was outside when he got home. Cicely, very upset. Cicely's paws were printed too. Schwartz learned the police found 
casually tossed in Russ's bedroom closet, his size 11 tan slippers with what appeared to be dried blood on them. This was the first direct link between the husband and the dead body. Smudges of blood were found on a white switch plate just inside the master bedroom, too. Had the killer used a bloody hand to flip on the light? They also found Russ's yellow ball cap on the kitchen floor with what might be blood inside the crown. They seized two washcloths, four towels, and the brown rug from the bathroom. Swabs were taken from all over the vanity, sink, shower, both drains. Two good palm prints were found on the sliding glass door leading to where the dog was chained in the cold. Russ's black Harley-Davidson jacket was taken into evidence, cell phones, four laptops, computers, an iPod, two MP3 players. They processed Russ's Ford Explorer, installing a hidden GPS for them to track him later. Swabs for blood and DNA were taken from every place a person might have touched. Luminol, which reacts to the hemoglobin in blood, glows in the dark when exposed to a substance that might be blood, was sprayed on the door panels and driver's seats of Russ's car. On the passenger seat, there was an Arby's bag and a receipt for $3.01 and for two Junior Cheddar Melt roast beef sandwiches, time-stamped at 9.09 p.m., Tuesday, December 27th. Two bottles of iced tea, one empty, one unopened, and a carton of cigarettes with one pack missing were next to the Arby's bag. These items irrefutably proved Russ Faria's account of his stops on the route to and from game on Tuesday. Russ's alibi was even more airtight and rock solid. It should be fairly simple to get this dismissed. Schwartz would review the alibi investigation as well. December 28th, Detectives Mike McCann and Dean Fry arrived at Mike Corbin's mobile home, catching a strong whiff of marijuana. Mike Corbin and his partner Angelica Hillian confirmed every detail of Russ's account separately. His arrival time, the movie watching, Russ leaving at 9 p.m. His behavior was normal, so relaxed, in fact, Russ got a little bit drowsy. Next up, the detectives went to visit the missing player, Richard May, who confirmed he hadn't been able to game because he was making deliveries for a Chinese restaurant, also confirmed by his boss. Next, they went to establish that Russ had made the series of stops he claimed. Video from the Kanoko station showed Russ pumping gas into his Ford Explorer at 5.56 p.m. He was on video at the counter of the U gas station buying a carton of cigarettes at 5.32 p.m. The Green Country store had no video, but there was a dog food charge on Russ's visa for $41.87, charged at 5.52 p.m. He appeared on video again, entering the QT gas station at 5.56 p.m., buying two bottles of iced tea, leaving the store at 5.58 p.m. For the trip home, the video camera at Arby's wasn't working, but Schwartz still had the Arby's bag and the time-stamped dated receipt. It was Detective Floyd and Ryder who carefully timed Russ's route to and from game. From Russ's home to the Kanoko station, then to UGAS, then Green's Country Store, and to the QT, arriving at Mike's, came in at 24.86 miles, 41 minutes, 30 seconds. With stops, a 60-minute round trip was spot-on accurate, confirming Russ's account. Checking the ride home... Floyd covered the distance from Arby's to Russ's house in 26 minutes, 30 seconds. 
the police concluded, leaving Corbin's, stopping at Arby's, Rush should have been home no later than 9.31 p.m. This leaves a nine-minute window between arriving home and Russ making the 911 call. Nine minutes. So this seems to clear Russ if one is being really logical, right? Interviews with gaming friends continued at the Chesterfield Police Station on New Year's Eve. Nothing incriminating or new was learned. On game night, Mike Corbin was the referee, while Russ played a monk named Gee, who never used weapons. Quote, we were all within eight feet of each other all night, end quote, said Mike. So no one left either. Mike had known Russ for 15 years and had never seen Russ lose his temper or be violent. Boyd and Ryder got virtually the same story from Angie Hillian, Marshall Back, and Brandon Sweeney, all of them sincerely cooperating with law enforcement. Okay, make sure you're prepared for this one. With this evidence, the police and prosecutor theorized that Russ had time to kill Betsy between his arrival home and the 911 call. Again, nine minutes. Russ came home, flew into a rage, changed his clothes, stabbed his wife 55 times, cleaned it up, changed his clothes back, all without making a bloody mess, and called 911 and presented himself as a shocked, grieving husband, all in nine minutes. And then withstood 42 hours of intense police grilling without making a single contradiction or weakening his story. That's insane. But this was the police theory. And they all went along with it. This is not the decision of one person. This is, this is everybody here. And they're all batshit nuts. Detective Paul Barish and Officer Jana Walters informed the family of Betsy's death on Wednesday morning. This is always a terrible, terrible task to have to do. They spoke with Betsy's sister, Julia Sweeney, and daughter Leah at Julie's home, the women bursting into tears. Crushed, upset, neither had any idea of what happened to Betsy or who would want to harm her. They were able to help narrow down Betsy's time of death, however. Leah and Julie had gone to the U.S. Cellular about 7 p.m. to upgrade Leah's phone. And since the line was on Betsy's plan, they needed her approval. We've probably all been there trying to do this. Leah called Betsy at 7 p.m., asking her mom to answer the phone later as Leah would be calling from the store. Betsy said that Pam Huff was driving her home, but she'd definitely answer Leah's call. But that didn't happen. Leah called Betsy from the store at 7.21, 7.26, and 7.30 p.m., not getting an answer. This is another indicator that Betsy had been killed long before Russ arrived home at 9.31 p.m. This proved to Schwartz that Betsy was being attacked or was dead when Leah called. When interviewed, Leah offered some criticism of Russ. He did get angry, mostly over financial matters, and would yell at Betsy. And Betsy was afraid to stand up to him, liking to stay at Grandma Janet's. Things were not good between Russ and Betsy, but Betsy would act like everything was fine to keep peace in the family. By the time Detective Roger Mozzi and Officer Steve Queens got to Janet's home, Julie had already told everyone, including Betsy's youngest daughter, Mariah, the news of Betsy's murder. Neither Janet or Mariah could offer any insights into Betsy's death. They described her last hours at her mom's apartment on Tuesday. Bobby Wan, an old friend, was there visiting. Bobby drove Betsy to chemo, 
where Pam Huck joined them. After chemo, they'd spent the afternoon playing the game upward. Janet said Betsy had begun to feel blah and left with Pam to go home about 6.30 p.m. Pam called Janet about 8.52 p.m., saying that she tried to call Betsy but got no answer. She was worried Betsy was annoyed with her for not staying with her until Russ got home. Janet quoted Pam as saying she hadn't gone in the house with Betsy, contradicting the story Pam told police. Why all the lies? Janet said she called Russ's phone around 8.30 p.m., but he hadn't answered and she left a voicemail. Well, that wasn't strange, though, because Russ usually didn't pick up his phone on game night. I don't answer my phone on game night either. Janet spoke about Betsy receiving psychiatric treatment a few years back, and she now believes that Betsy and Russ had a great relationship, their marriage was going great, and they were in great financial shape, too. I think that's exactly the opposite of what Pam had told the police. Hmm. Mariah spoke of Betsy's depression over the last few years, including when she found a suicide note folded on her bed pillow after her first cancer diagnosis. But her mom was handling the new cancer prognosis well and seemed happy at Christmas, and they'd made plans to all go on a cruise in March. So Betsy was making plans for the future. Like Janet and Mariah, Bobby Wan said that Betsy was in good spirits on Tuesday, including at chemo when Pam Hupp joined them. Bobby confirmed that Betsy had wanted to speak with Russ about buying Janet's house, where they would live with Leah and Mariah while renting out their own home to build up finances so they could retire in Florida. Betsy didn't think Russ would like the idea, but was still excited to discuss it with him. Bobby added that Betsy said Russ was, quote, very verbally abusive to her, end quote. Betsy's sister, Mary Rogers, the oldest of Betsy's siblings, said that six or seven years ago, Mary had been ordered out of the Faria home when she attempted to intervene in a verbal altercation between Betsy and Russ. Mary wound up calling the police. Now, the police did check into this, and they did find a 2005 report indicating that they'd argued because Russ hadn't cleaned up the house as he'd promised. Mary described their relationship as rocky, that Betsy had cheated on Russ several times, and Russ knew this. But they had worked through these problems and now loved each other very much. Russ had come a long way, earning a college degree, and changed his behavior. He now, quote, loves and takes care of Elizabeth, end quote, said Mary. She also explained that Betsy had been suicidal twice in the past, admitted to the hospital in 2008 and 2010. Her cancer prognosis made her sad, but she'd bounce back playing tennis and joking that she'd probably die on the court. Betsy's youngest sister, Pamela Welker, repeated the same insights. Police also spoke to ex-husband Ron Carter, who said that he and Betsy had remained friends after the divorce. Betsy would come by when she was upset with Russ, and that often led to sex, usually about every two weeks. He'd spoken with her on the phone Christmas Eve, and she sounded upbeat, not at all depressed. Ron said Russ frequently disrespected Betsy, but they'd never struck her. Detectives also interviewed Russ's mom and sister, Lucy and Rachel. Lucy had last seen Russ and Betsy at Christmas, and all was good, and they were amazed at Betsy's positive attitude. Who in Russ's family was closest to Betsy? Oh, Aunt Linda Hartman. Lucy also confirmed that Russ had called her at 5 p.m. on Tuesday to say he was not making dinner with her that night. Shores was now eager to see if Linda Hartman would confirm Pam's story that Linda and Betsy were talking about leaving their husbands 
when they had taken the girls' weekend, which did not appear in the police report. All the police report reflected was that Linda and Betsy had gone to Branson for a girls' weekend, December 19th to 22nd, and Betsy was upbeat in spite of her cancer battle. Joel would learn that Linda and Betsy never discussed divorcing their husbands, but did joke about running away, and Pam Hupp had lied. Next, interviews with the Morningstar church pastors. Pastor Mike Schreiner confirmed their participation in church activities. The couple were doing quite well together, short of some personal conflicts with Betsy's daughter, Leah. The other pastors virtually repeated the same thing. Friends Kathleen and Ed Meyer, who are not related to Betsy's mother, Janet Meyer, described Russ as, quote, one of the most devoted husbands ever, end quote, and that Russ called Betsy his angel. Finally, an anonymous call left a tip that the police should interview Darlene Fuller. It turns out back in 2010, Darlene and Russ had a four-month-long affair. Russ ended all contact with her when Darlene sent him angry messages after seeing vacation photos of Betsy, Russ, and the girls on his Facebook. Months later, Darlene texted him with no response. She made a phone call, and it too was ignored. She did not believe Russ was capable of killing Betsy. All the immediate members of the Faria inner circle agreed. Betsy had been suicidal in the past, but she was coping well with her cancer diagnosis, and she and Russ had had their ups and downs, but were in a really good place in December 2011. Both Russ and Betsy had had affairs, but certainly was not evidence of a husband who had killed his wife. Darlene Fuller appeared to have no bearing on this case, nor were the witness statements about Russ being verbally abusive. That's all hearsay. After reviewing the statements of dozens of people, Joel saw that the police case against Russ had not been moved forward at all, short of personal opinions and antidotes about Russ and Betsy's marriage. And that concludes episode 40 of A Murder Most Foul on Bone Deep, untangling the twisted story of the tragic Betsy Faria case by Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz. Wait until you hear the next part. Again, you will not believe it. The investigation continues. Joel Schwartz stays on the defensive, while a logically challenged prosecutor and police department cannot see the forest through the trees. And our next book is American Predator by journalist Maureen Callahan. I do love serial killer stories. For 14 years, Israel Keys was one of the most ambitious and terrifying serial killers in modern history, moved about unnoticed, flying under the radar, literally. Described by a prosecutor as a force of pure evil, Keys was a predator who struck all over the United States where he buried kill kits, cash, weapons, and body disposal tools in remote locations across the country. Terrifying, he abducts his victims in broad daylight and kills and disposes of them in mere hours. And then he would return to his home in Alaska, resuming a life as a quiet, reliable construction worker devoted to his only daughter. A chilling, terrifying story. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. Uh, the link is on my blog. We know we know what it is, but I'm going to tell you anyway. www.murdershelfbookclub.com. All right, both will really help me grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. 
reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email, jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I really do enjoy hearing from you. Follow me or subscribe on my show anywhere that you can find podcasts because I'm everywhere now. Let my episode jump into your feed. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material, snack and drink information for Bone Deep Untangling the Twisted Story of the Tragic Betsy Ferry Murder Case is found on my blog, too. Written and produced by Jill. All rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach.